A term or an idea that has come up in several conversations that I've had with some of you as of recently has to do with the idea of normal. What is normal? What is normal today? You know, it's very likely that someone who might have been in a coma for the last five years would be very surprised to wake up and find what society considers to be normal today. One of these conversations that I had with one uh, in a group of us together recently had to do with the idea that the Indiana State University used to be called the state normal school. Now, we typically think today of the idea of normal meaning mediocre, kind of middle of the line, middle of the road, if you will. So it doesn't really make a school sound good to call it, well, it's the normal, it's the mediocre school. But the reality is the reason why Indiana State University as the state teacher's college was called the normal school is because it was tasked with the responsibility to communicate to future teachers what is the normal as far as federal expectations go for teachers, as far as what are the norms of pedagogy. In fact, a a normal school or a normal college was an institution created to train teachers by educating them in the norms of the federal curriculum. You know, I saw uh, one of you that explained a t-shirt that they had seen recently. And this person shared that the teacher said, normal isn't coming back, but Jesus is. And I think we'll find from our verses here this morning that that's affirmed for us. That normal isn't necessarily coming back in our society, but the comfort in the fact that Jesus is. You know, the reality is, is God's people have always been abnormal. We have always been outside of the norm. And what's odd for us in our American experience is that in recent history, in the West, biblical worldview ideas and the biblical norm has kind of been the norm in society. But we are becoming abnormal again. It's only been as of lately that we are starting to feel this again in America. But it has been typical. It has been the regular experience for God's people throughout history to be abnormal when compared with the rest of the society around them, the culture that we live within. So we turn and we see these ideas in Hebrews 13 verses 9 through 16 this morning. As we read, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, I dip a little bit back into two weeks ago where we covered verse 9, just for us to remember that the argument shifts here 
to this odd juxtaposition that we're not used to. The difference between being strengthened by grace or being strengthened by foods. That seems like an odd different ends of the spectrum that's being offered here. But, but let's recall the fact that foods here are, are um, referencing the entire Mosaic law system. And, and so often it would be that for these Hebrew believers, as they were being encouraged to live under God's new covenant, rather than thinking that they need to live under the old covenant of the law, that so much of this would be, be reflected in what they chose to eat. If I eat these certain things, or if I don't eat these certain things, then I am living by God's old covenant. And if I feel a freedom in those things, or if I feel like I'm not unclean just because of uh, partaking in these certain foods, that this would represent a freedom to live by the new covenant. A freedom to be strengthened by grace rather than by food. And so it's, it's really, that's the juxtaposition here that we're reminded of. The difference between living under God's new covenant of grace or of the old covenant of works according to the law. And so we continue on. And he is encouraging them with the fact that we have something to eat from, if you will, that even the high priest couldn't even eat from. As we see in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp to bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share with share. What you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We look here this morning at these verses in our message being titled, The Blessing of Being an Outcast with Christ. You know, verse 13 here is so much of a crux. It's, it's the central statement, if you will, I believe, of all of the application Ideas that, that come to this letter to the Hebrews. After all of the doctrine and, and explanation of the old and new covenants. And of Christ as our great high priest, our perfect sacrifice. Verse 13 is the central idea of the application. Therefore, let us go out to him. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. You know, the rise of cancel culture and the experience that we have as followers of Christ today, I believe this is what God used to lead me and to lead us into studying this letter to the Hebrews together. Because we are called more and more 
as, as we don't leave the culture as these original readers were doing by following Christ, but the culture is leaving us if we are to live by biblical norms, by biblical principles. The culture is leaving us today and we find ourselves more and more being called to go outside of our culture if we are to be with Christ, if we are to follow Christ. And the main idea from these verses here this morning I want to communicate is this. Following Christ means partaking in His perfect offering for sin, making us different from religious people and making it possible for us to worship God with our words and actions. Following Christ means partaking in His perfect offering for sin, making us different from religious people and making it possible for us to worship God with our words and actions. You know, every coin has two sides to it. And in many ways, what we saw through the first 12 chapters of Hebrews is the side of the coin, if you will, of following Christ from God's perspective. Him explaining to us His understanding, His design of the new covenant and replacing the old covenant. And, and showing us the coin of following Christ from His design, His understanding. And for the chapters that we've seen God's side of the coin, we've learned that He is far greater than any angel or leader or prophet or patriarch of Israel. Jesus is far greater than all of them as our sovereign Savior. We've learned from God's side of the coin that that Christ's priesthood predates the old covenant law. Being made a priest forever, not according to the priesthood of Levi, but according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he has been made a priest forever. We've learned that the temple itself in Jerusalem is just a model of the one in heaven. That Jesus himself brought his own sacrifice for us. And we've learned from Hebrews that the, that the great high priest of Jesus himself, having made an offering for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God Almighty. By sitting down showing his work was complete and no more need be done. And we learn that rather than constantly bringing an offering for sin, Jesus not only made one final offering, but He actually offered Himself. He offered His blood as the sacrifice that pays for our sins and enables us to be forgiven. We've learned that Jesus' single offering of Himself, His single sacrifice, made it possible so that we, as followers of Christ, can stand perfect before God forever, even as we are continually still being sanctified. We've learned that God's covenant love is now poured out on His children of the new covenant, which was inaugurated with Christ's death and resurrection. And we've learned that even the heroes of the Old Testament had a relationship with God, not because of their works, not because of their actions, but they had a relationship with God by faith. And having a relationship with God, we've learned 
That having a relationship with God by faith in Christ means that we can come boldly before His throne to find grace and help in time of need. And lastly, we've learned that to believe that Jesus is all this, but to sit on the fence on whether or not it's worth it to follow Him is to be in danger of turning away from Him and never being able to repent and follow Christ again. All these truths are God's side of the coin, if you will, that we've been informed of through, through the first 12 chapters of the book of Hebrews. But there's a side of the coin for Christ followers that, have, that we have experienced for centuries as his followers. It is the ostracism and canceling that has come with aligning ourselves with our invisible king. So the first and most important step of the blessing of being an outcast with Christ is to trust Christ's sacrifice to set you apart as holy. We're told we have an altar from which those who serve the tent in the tent, this being the tabernacle of, of where, where sacrificial offerings were made to provide for God's passing over sin, we have an altar from which those who serve in the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now, obviously, this dips back. If you've been with us through Hebrews and been listening, this is like firing off all these understandings of the tabernacle and the, the ministry of the priest and even the high priest. And, and um, that, that, but maybe what we haven't covered here is, is many of these offerings were able to be eaten from. A person that was giving a peace offering for God was then able to also sit down and eat from that offering. The, the priests were able to eat from many of the offerings, the grain offerings or the meat offerings. But there were sacrifices that no one was allowed to eat from. One of those being the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, which the priest, after sacrificing for himself to, to allow God to pass over his sins, would then, the high priest, would enter into the Holy of Holies with the offering of the, the atoning sacrifice. And placing that blood on the altar before God, that sacrifice, no one would eat of that animal. It would be burned. It would be removed and burned. And I think he's referring to this day of atonement sacrifice. And the, the altar that we have to partake of, it's not a physical altar, but is that which God, Christ bore the offering of himself. And his sacrifice did not atone for sins. But recall back that the first step into this conversation was about let's be strengthened by grace under the new covenant, not by foods through the old covenant process. We, we have something of a sacrifice that has been made for us that is far better than any of those sacrifices that they could eat from. In fact, it's even better than the Day of Atonement that they could not eat from. 
Christ's sacrifice didn't just atone for sins, it paid for them. It didn't just cover over sins of the worshiper. His sacrifice makes us sanctified, holy, set apart for God. And in trusting Christ as our Savior, we are recognizing that my sins were paid for by Christ in his sacrifice. And Christ's righteousness is offered to me. And that I have the opportunity to accept God's offer to be my father rather than my judge. And I can stand holy before him in the righteousness of Christ. All of that in simply receiving that from God. And it is indicated to us that he has answered us by his indwelling Holy Spirit. It was no small thing for a Jew who trusted Christ as Messiah to say, no, I don't need to go to the temple. It has no value to me anymore. It was no small thing for them. They would eventually be treated as the worst of sinner, as, as being unclean. They would be looked at by their friends and family and being like, you got a pile of sins to deal with. Because they were looking at them through their understanding of the old covenant. The privilege that we have under the new covenant goes far beyond the sacred altar of God's holy of holies and the sacrifice of atonement. That blood of atonement was just as sprinkled as it was sprinkled on the altar and the body of that sacrifice of atonement was disposed of outside of the camp rather than Eden, so also Jesus, our saving sacrifice, suffered outside of the camp, not just to atone for sins, but to make a people holy for himself. As one writer says, when the Jew would leave the temple sacrifices in order to place his faith in their fulfillment, the crucified, risen Messiah, he would be separated thus, set apart from that Judaism, which he had formerly espoused. So as they were experiencing this being set apart and separated, they're being encouraged that this is just a sign that God has set you apart and sanctified you for himself. That sounds like a win to me. And the writer might be flipping their rejection on its head saying, darn right we're separated from our countrymen. We're set apart to God. You know, imagine if you will, you know those galley ships that would have rowers in the, in, down in the belly of the ship? Imagine if you will, a whole range of men down there rowing and rowing and there was a system like, like once you reached seniority and, and you moved up in, in the rows to the front of the ship and then you served there at the oars for five years then you could finally be set free. And at the next port that the ship would come to, they'd give you enough money for one night of partying hard and say, enjoy your freedom. And that that was the system that these men were, were raised in, were trained for, were living in. But then one day the captain comes down and picks out one of these rowers, one of these oarmen, and takes him up to the deck And says, you've been set free. And he comes to realize that on the boat that day is the king. And the king has been looking for one person to free and to adopt 
because he wants the, the symbol of his grace, the symbol of his goodness to show the span of the distance that his adopted child has come from. That they're going to be made an heir to the kingdom. Do you think the freed young man is going to miss their old life? Do you think they're going to say, shouldn't I be back to the oars? I got some rowing to do. It's a little, it would be a little bit easier in that picture to have the king standing before them, to feel the, the, the washing of the mire and the sweat and the new clothes put on him and the ring put on his finger. It's a little more difficult when your king is invisible right now, isn't it? Thank the Lord for the testimony of the Holy Spirit to us. It's normal for us to worry at times. Could it really be that my sins are just forgiven? That I made a child of the king of the universe? Our default is to think that our sins must be atoned for. They must be made up for. And like following the old covenant or the new covenant, a person is either going to try to make up for their sins or to accept God's forgiveness. That's old covenant thinking or new covenant thinking. Those are the only two options. But here's the deal. One of them doesn't work anymore. That's what Hebrews has told us. There no longer exists a sacrifice for sins. Meaning outside of Christ. Trust Christ's sacrifice to set you apart as holy. With today's cancel culture, I want to encourage you to embrace your outcast status with Jesus. We're told, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now, when he speaks of the gate, he's speaking of the city of Jerusalem where Jesus was taken out of and crucified on Calvary. And then he, he switches from gate to camp. Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. You ever feel like you're, I'm outside the camp now. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. To be outside the camp is to be, was to be understood. Camp is more of tabernacle, traveling through the wilderness imagery of the nation of Israel. To be outside of the camp was to be outside of the blessing of being God's privileged people. Every now and then, as I read F.F. F. Bruce on this, he just kind of goes off, and I, and I love it, and I thought I'd share one of these with you. He says, in this context, the camp stands for the established fellowship and ordinances of Judaism. To abandon them with all their sacred associations inherited from remote antiquity was a hard thing, but it was a necessary thing. They had been accustomed to thinking of the camp and all that was inside it as sacred and everything outside it was profane and unclean. Were they to leave its sacred precincts and venture on to unsacred ground? Yes. Because in Jesus, the old values had been reversed. 
what was formerly sacred was now unsacred because Jesus had been expelled from it. What was formerly unsacred was now sacred because Jesus was there. You see how these readers are experiencing this flip? Many of you are probably experiencing that in our culture. What used to reinforce your family values, what used to reinforce your biblical work ethic, what used to encourage you to practice your faith in the public square, not anymore. The readers were to be encouraged that they no longer needed to be concerned about being accepted by their Jewish family and friends. In fact, being rejected by them because of Christ is just a byproduct of following Christ. This is what Peter acknowledged when he said there's, when, when Jesus was, was uh, so many of his followers departed from following him and he turns to the twelve and he says, are you going to go too? And Peter acknowledged, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That sounds like a win to me. Imagine again this, this, this young man who's been brought up onto the deck, who's been made a child of the king, who, who's been washed and he's got robes on and, and a ring on his finger. Imagine when his, when his old compadres from, from down below get their, you know, their once every five hour break up on the, on the dock. You know, they rotate up there and they're kind of getting to smell the fresh air and, and uh, you know, rest a little bit and drink some water. And they look over and they're like, are you going to row in that? Uh, hey, by the way, I, I took your spot. And by the way, I heard that when you come back down, you're going to be demoted all the way back to the back of the boat. You better get back down there. You better get to it. What are you doing up here? Don't you understand? In the same way, people can be thinking with, hey, you you got to be following the trends right now. You got to be you got to be uh, obeying the self righteousness of today, and it is such a screwed up self righteousness, where people feel like they're righteous because they eat vegan, but it doesn't matter who they sleep with. And you know that that that'll change. It's like it's like licking your finger and feeling the wind. What makes me righteous today? Our righteousness comes from the fact that we've been made a child of the king. Sounds like a win to me. We're not going to find lasting acceptance or significance or security by embracing this world. We, we, and we can't embrace Christ and embrace, embrace also the religious spirituality of this world. And leaving the religious spirituality comes with rejection. And we should embrace it as a part of following our Savior. This world thinks that we're bigots. It thinks that we're bigots for saying that Jesus is the only way to know your Creator. This world thinks we're judgmental when we explain that knowing Christ should change your life. And if it hasn't, that makes me concerned for you, my friend. Oh, you're just being judgmental. This world thinks that we're disrespecting someone 
for not allowing them to disrespect God and choose their own pronouns. Christ's final sacrifice, which makes us holy before God, was made while he was being rejected. Let's join our Savior and embrace the rejection that he experienced and that also brought us salvation. Now, I'm not talking about being a jerk, okay? And I'm not talking about equating espousing right-wing politics with being a Christian, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. Self-righteousness has no place in following Christ. And I don't care if it's a self-righteousness on the left or a self-righteousness on the right. I'm not talking about picking fights on Facebook and then being able to say, well, I'm just experiencing the rejection of Christ. That's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about living out our faith and being willing to say, Christ is supposed to change your life, friend. Being willing to say, Christ is the only way to God, family member. Our Savior that we are to embrace may not provide us with physical comfort now. But his physical city will come one day in which we will have every tear wiped away. And every joy and satisfaction will be found in him and in him alone. So start enjoying it now in Him. So aside from embracing our rejection as identifying with Christ, we're also to actively worship God constantly in word and in deed. This is kind of, it's it's temple priesthood terminology where we are now making sacrificial offerings. We're bringing sacrifices to God. Where he says, through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do you know that Christ has not only made you holy, he has made you one of his priests. We're told in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a, holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Recall what Jesus tells the woman at the well in John 4 when she wants to debate whether we should be worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem or, or if where the Samaritans were worshiping, if that was acceptable or not. Jesus tells them, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. That's new covenant worship. Worshiping constantly with our whole selves through Christ. Right? Notice that. Through Him. It's always through Him. We don't graduate somewhere to where like, man, I've reached the plane where my worship doesn't need to come through Christ. God just recognizes me for for my righteousness on its own. No. We always stand in God's grace in a relationship with him. 
Or as one writer says, how easy it is for suffering saints to complain, but how important it is for them to, be, to give thanks to God. Worshiping with our lips. This time that we spend together here every week is very important to God. And if it becomes more difficult for us in our changing culture to do so, it will be no less important to God. These believers who might return home from church and find their business spray painted, if you, I don't know what they would have used in first century, mud or something like that, and find it painted with, um, you know, Jesus lover or outcast. These believers are the ones that were told, do not neglect assembling together, as is the habit of some. And as that pressure increases for us, we have the same call as well. To worship God together. Notice where offerings of praise come from. Fruits of lips that, are, that acknowledge His name. If you are accustomed to acknowledging our Lord and King to others, these offerings of praise come easy. It's just the fruit of it. Praise just appears like fruit. Or as one writer puts it, lips accustomed to acknowledge God will be constantly singing His praise. And so aside from worshiping with our words, God cares about our deeds too. We should, be, we should be doing good to others and sharing with what we have. And I think he's specifically speaking of our relationship with one another. This term for sharing is koinonia, which many of you recognize that as the koine Greek uh, term for fellowship among the believers. That our fellowship in many ways the depth and its value is found in how much we meet each other's physical needs. You know, just like that young man that goes from serving at the oars to being elevated to a child of the king, from that point forward, everywhere he goes, that has become his identity. That has become who he represents. That has become what people recognize him as. But just like we serve an invisible king, we can be tempted to make our allegiance to him invisible. And that is not what we should do. These believers were being singled out with their fellow believers, their fellow church goers who were being persecuted, they were being singled out as they would join in them with their suffering. But they were embracing that. That day came as well. But let's practice joining in with one another in our suffering now. Do you care about pleasing God? If so, lift up your praise and care for one another's needs. Jesus' sacrifice is the basis of our new covenant relationship. In our, in our new covenant worship. And we respond with our own sacrifices of praise and giving. Of our service and our treasure. 
Everywhere you go can be turned into a worship sanctuary. Any moment in time, you can worship the God in word and deed as one of his priests. A holy priesthood. And notice, everywhere the need, everywhere and every need should be turned into a moment of worship as we're told to do this continually. It is not a notice to us about the opportunity that we have to worship with God, worship God with everything. This is a notice to us of the responsibility that we have as Christ followers to worship God with everything. And all of this could only be made possible as we're told in verse 12. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Rather than them returning regularly to ensure that God would pass over their sins, as we're told in Romans 3, God was passing over the former sins so that he might pour them out on Christ. And this is describing that moment of his suffering, his being cast out from his people, of when they were saying, okay, you know what? We're really going to make a statement here. We're going to take him outside of the city, and we're going to put him up on a hill, and we're going to crucify him, and everybody's going to see he ain't worth nothing. And all of that's done with the understanding that we who follow him, especially those that would read this, would need to look at his suffering body and say, if that's where my Savior is, if that's where my Lord is, then that's where I belong. And as we recall in communion, in the Lord's Supper, the celebration of this Lord's Supper, this one of two ordinances that God gave to us to practice together, We are encouraged to think of the broken body of our Lord. We are encouraged to think of the spilt blood of our saving sacrifice. I am constantly amazed. I've shared this before. I am constantly amazed that God calls for us to draw back to and remember regularly his son's most humbling moment. His son's moment of his greatest rejection. And I would hope that as we partake of it, we think of and we pray, we wonder, how, Lord, do you want me to experience this with your son? But thank you, Lord, first of all, that he did it for me. First Corinthians eleven twenty three through twenty six, the Apostle Paul explains that he received from the Lord what he also delivered to them. That the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, "This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." And in the same way, he took the cup after supper. 
And this statement is so significant, especially for our time in Hebrews. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It began then. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, Paul says, until he comes. What are we seeking? We're not seeking this city that we may be driven out of. We're seeking a city that is to come when the Lord comes. Of course, we practice here open communion, which means if you have a relationship with the Lord, you are welcome to come as we sing to one of these three tables, two in the back and one in the front, and partake of it there or take it back to your seat and and partake it as you see fit. Uh, We're actually going to go through two songs this morning uh, to be able to reflect and to to be able to take communion together. Um, But let's bow our heads together at this time.